0: the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio
1: New South Wales.
2: Hello again and welcome to the last show before Christmas. Coming up for the first time in a few years, many oyster farmers around New South Wales are expecting a big income boost from their sales this year for a change after some pretty bad weather in previous years. And this Christmas is a thought for the older people living on farms, isolated and lonely during the festive season. One of the problems, they say, is that stoic she'll be right attitude and it uh, does hold back that clarion call for assistance sometimes.
3: But there are also very many rural older people who are isolated. Uh, We know that um, loneliness and isolation is a big issue in uh, um, our rural communities, even though rural communities do have a great sense of community and, and do tend to bring people together in all sorts of events.
2: We'll hear more of that story uh, shortly on the program in about 25 minutes' time from now. But first up in mid-north coast, Grazier has expressed his disappointment with the lack of government support for farmers affected by the October fires west of Kempsey. The fires, as you'll remember, burnt through close to 35,000 hectares and destroyed seven properties with hundreds more affected. Taruka cattle farmer David Duff told Tina Quinn that the community is doing its best to recover, but it will be a lean Christmas for many
4: people are just getting on with it you know a lot of infrastructure damage fences and um stock losses and of course we didn't have a real lot of grass on the ground before the fire because we we're in drought conditions but what there was wasn't much good to us after the fire went through because it all got turned to soot so on a more personal level we um we had to start feeding cattle we had over 600 head of cattle here at home on this block where we live and um A lot of people in the district were the same. It didn't matter whether you had 20 head of cattle or six head of cattle and a horse, you know, whatever stock you had on hand, they had to be hand-fed. So Need for Feed came into the area with over 40 truckloads of hay, which was a great response and must say thank you very much to all those people responsible for organising that and um, donating that, that fodder because that definitely helped us out. It was a very challenging time and the rain... Although it greened the place up, it was only sheep feed. And at that time of the year, our natural country doesn't grow a real lot of grass. We don't get a lot of growth in our country until Christmas time, until it really warms up, which it's done in the last couple of weeks. Um, Since the rain, we've sort of had um, consecutive weeks of where it's been 38 plus and the extremes have been up around, you know, 42 and 43 degrees.
5: So is that concerning for the community?
4: Obviously, those sorts of
5: temperatures, I mean, it has been much more wet of, of late, but that's not expected t- to last, really, is it?
4: Well, no, the weather forecast is that um, we're going into a, you know, a, an extremely hot and dry summer, but this is the mid-north coast of New South Wales, and storm rains usually what gets us out of strife um, leading up to Christmas. And then, I mean, the bulk of our rain usually falls um, after Christmas and through into Easter, and that's, that's when we get a lot of rain. So, obviously,
5: need for feed were a a, a big help at the time. What are people doing for feed right now?
4: Well, uh, that's a good question. I've um, sort of been pretty busy um, trying to resurrect the the farm, as you can well imagine, and this time of year we move a fair few stock around. We're marking calves and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, a lot of people are still buying fodder, Um, any that's got any money, you know. I think the biggest thing was is that, a lot of people didn't have the money to go out and and buy a lot of fodder, and I think uh, they probably we had a large sale in Kempsey on a couple of weeks ago. with you know, a lot of a lot of cattle got sold. Perhaps people have chosen to um, to sell the cattle. I, I can't really comment on that. I don't really know. But us ourselves: we've um, we kept feeding cattle, and we've exhausted most of our hay. We have still got one semi-trailer load of hay left, but we just limp along and. We went from feeding every day to feeding every second day. And then we went out to where we were feeding once a week. Um, Prior to the rain that we got last week, Mm. we were virtually on the crust of having to start to feed pretty heavily again. But uh, we ended up getting a storm and it sort of greened things up a bit. And we've got some fodder crops in.
5: And it being the week of Christmas, it's been a very tough few months for the community especially being cattle farmers who, who were affected by these fires because the cattle market has obviously been extremely tough the last 12 months and people were already struggling with the the huge drop in, in prices for commodities, but, you know, increasing prices when it came to feed and fodder and that sort of thing. Is it going to be a lean Christmas for a lot of people? How how are they feeling?
4: Well, yes, look, unfortunately, I think it will be because I I just think, you know i've had a couple of neighbors say to me that they're five minutes away from being broke so i think that you know christmas probably will be a little bit um tough for people i mean if you haven't got the money mate you just can't spend it so i think with the rain that's been about it's put a little bit of spirit back in people and there has been a bit of a kick in the cattle market so some people are selling cattle just to get money to get by you know but the input costs of the thing that's got us snookered we're sort of it's like playing a game of chess, you know. you mm-hmm. just got to watch what you spend. And um, it, like I said, if it doesn't come in the front gate, well, you can't be spending it out.
2: Tarukka cattle farmer David Duff speaking there with Tina Quinn about a lean Christmas for many after the bushfires. It's 11 minutes past 12 here on the country. And now, despite recent rainfall, demand for fodder is still high in areas missing out on the wet stuff. Ian Coxhead is a loosened grower near Tamworth, and his bales are going as quickly as he can cut them with demand so strong. He told Lara Webster 2023 has been one of his most difficult growing years yet.
6: We've had a, a late winter, a late finish to the winter, I should say, and, and so it was extremely cold. As even, and that had an impact on growth, and so we were very short sure of hay, sort of coming into that dry spell that we had in uh, in October and uh, like July and October. So we ended up, um, as we had done in previous droughts, um, imported hay from Victoria, and we had um, several hundred tonne that we started to bring back and um, because the forecasts weren't looking good for this summer El Nino had kicked in and you know and so that had an impact on people's minds what just what they were planning ahead so um, some of that was people a lot of people actually sold their stock and the uh, hay production uh, was bad so we're importing hay uh, and then it started to rain in November and so we started to make hay but there was a lot of weather damage to hay because there was too much rain so, talk about winching, winching farmers, but here we are. Um, but it's fact, and uh, so our business really does rely on on weather and, and working around and work with the weather uh, conditions. So, we made some quite nice hay yesterday. We got that in just before the rain, so um, one lot is... Um, on the truck now, right, ready to go as soon as it stops raining in uh, the area that where it's going. As far as hay production goes, we're expecting it to uh, to improve now that we've had some good rain and um, good, really good rain during November and continuing on in December. So
1: You're not new to this game, <laughs> but how much relief was there when you were able to get that good cut of hay and, and now that things are starting to look like they're improving again?
6: Yeah, look, it's, it's good. Um, even though we have irrigation, our... Um, Good production really is um, weather dependent as well because it doesn't matter where you are and how much irrigation you put on you don't get the same yield as uh, out of lucerne anyway as you do with uh, a drop of rain. One supplements the other and uh, so we've got good, um, good water supply right now so we're expecting and hoping that we get some good fine weather after this change goes through to make some more good hay.
1: So we- Where's the demand coming from for you at the moment? We know across the New England Northwest, it, it has been patchy in areas. I think this latest uh, rain has been able to get to some of those patchier areas. We know the Hunters still dry. There are dry patches on the coast still. So, where are you seeing a lot of the demand for your hay at the moment coming from?
6: Yeah, a lot of the demand is still coming from those dry patchy areas, and it's surprising how um, how many of them are out there, in particular on. Uh, around the Ebor, uh, Wallamumbi area, east of Armadale, it's still quite dry. And they missed out on a lot of this good rain that was, we had uh, during November, which, um, you know, and that's, uh, there's a bit demand in that area. Around the Grafton area, extremely dry. I know they've had some heavy rain out of this um, offshoot from, from uh, the last uh, cyclone that sort of hit North Queensland and formed a depression and it's moved down so there's those areas uh there's still uh, still a certain quantity of hay going into there but you know having said that we also supply um you know a few abattoirs on the coast so there's always a demand there somewhere whether it be um you know for dairies or or um just um uh, general livestock as in beef cattle um and sheep and goats and all those sort of things that go with uh, small acreage as well so and there's a lot of hay sort of we sell to to agents on the coast, and they distribute to their customers who might be a, a girl with a horse on five acres and those sort of things. So that demand is always there on the coast, and um, and so that's a huge part of our business these days. Is looking looking after um, you know whether it be big sales or, or small single bale sales, we, we take them all because um, if we lose one one single bale custom roll doesn't matter that much but if you lose a large one to large customer then it does matter uh
1: 2024 i mean you don't have a crystal ball and we certainly had so much talk of this el nino there has been more wet weather than they were initially thinking how do you think demand is shaping up come january
6: that's i wish i had the crystal ball because it's <laughs> it's, it's an odd one it's a, it's an unusual season where you know we had late winter with frost in october in this area here so that impacted on on our growth. Um, So come uh, November, December, um, you know, it's changed and it's looking good. We're sort of expecting that that will continue now through January, February, which are normally wet months anyway. I'm sort of optimistic, more optimistic than I was when they were talking about, um, you know, dry, hot summer, um, which to this point hasn't eventuated.
2: Loosen grower Ian Coxhead speaking there to Lara Webster. It's 17 minutes past 12.
7: You're listening to The Country Hour
0: on ABC Radio New South Wales. ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
2: In the state's north, the Clarence prawn industry is still reeling from the white spot disease being detected on three prawn farms earlier this year. Farmers haven't restocked the ponds following an on-farm decontamination process, and a large number of fishermen have sold their river prawn shares and exited the industry. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries White Spot Recovery Coordinator, Dr Jeff Allen, spoke to Kim Honan about the take-up of the government's buyback and income support packages.
7: One has been we've given them income support and that package is in return for them revoking, they've told us they can't fish and in turn for revoking their ability to fish for two years temporarily, they've got the income support average of what they would have earned. So that's the first bit. Some fishermen said we've lost confidence totally in the prawn fishing industry and we offered a buyback package. No one's licence has been cancelled or changed and all those people can return to fishing even if people have sold their shares, they can move by more shares and continue fishing if they so choose.
1: Can you say how many shares you've actually bought back?
7: Yeah, we've bought back about 6,500 shares that have gone back, which it works out to be something less than about a quarter of the shares that are available. But there's a lot of shares of people that people have accumulate that aren't used, that aren't used to sort of catch product. It's hard to say. I don't want to generalise, but there's lots of shares that aren't used so that we bought by buybacks and what we call latent shares.
1: So how many fishermen then opted for the buyback of shares?
7: About 19 fishing businesses bought back
1: shares. Of how many? 61. And were the shares solely for uh, the catch of, of prawns or, you know, other species?
7: Solely for river prawns. So there's two share classes. There's a trawl prawns in the river and there's some um, set property netters in the river The catch the bull prawns in the river, which are within the control zone for the biosecurity area where they can't fish and catch. Um, They can fish, but they can't move green prawns.
1: And do we know how many fishermen have opted for the income support?
7: You know, rather than tell you about the number of fishermen, I have certainly got that data. But if we looked at the way we did the income support, we provided income support, which was linked to the amount, the average amount of money they'd made from their prawning business over the last five years and at that average account we've counted for about over 95% of the total catch so the fishermen that caught the most prawns, almost all the prawns in the river have had some income support payments
1: And prawn farmers, uh, their situation is they haven't restocked their ponds at this stage so there won't be any locally um, farmed prawns f- for Christmas this year?
7: Not from the parents, no.
1: And what about by Easter do we know if the, the farmers are- you know, will be restocking those ponds to be ready for their, I guess, next lucrative, um, you know, season of the year?
7: The prawn farmers' decisions are up to them, their business decisions. So we don't know exactly what every farmer's going to do. But, uh, you know, they've got they've got risks moving forward looking at white spots. Our, our assistance grants is to try and make sure they're prepared for future future risks of white spot and, and to reduce those risks as much as
1: possible. But at this stage, you don't know whether they, they will be restocking those ponds? That's correct.
2: Dr. Jeff Allen is the DPI's a White Spot Recovery Coordinator for the Clarence Prawn Industry. Talking to you, the Kim Honan. 20 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. So what's your favourite food for Christmas lunch? Ham, turkey, cherries, prawns? What about oysters after a few pretty tough years with floods and wet weather? Many oyster farmers across New South Wales are expecting a big income boost from Christmas sales this year. Fingers crossed. But heavy rain and flooding on the south coast earlier this month saw almost all the estuaries in the region closed. And the concern is there won't be enough stock for Christmas as uh, New South Wales farmers oyster projects manager Andy Myers tells our reporter Kelly Johnson things are back on track just in time.
8: If you'd have asked me a question about supply for Christmas a couple of weeks ago, I would have been, uh, yeah, not looking so good. But now, or as of today and yesterday, we've had a number of uh, big oyster-producing estuaries open. Um, so farmers will be frantically out there uh, harvesting and getting products off to market, which should hit the market by the end of the week and early next week.
9: Right. So that is good timing because obviously Christmas is like right around the corner, but it was looking a few estuaries were actually closed last week.
8: Absolutely. I mean, pretty much the whole of the south coast um, was closed uh, to the harvesting of oysters. Um, but those growers uh, have worked really hard to get their water samples in to make sure everything's looking good. And the salinity has returned to those those estuaries. So they are back open to harvest and farmers are getting products out in large numbers um, as we speak.
9: Wonderful. And what about up north, mid north coast? Uh, how, are, how are things looking from that region? Uh, yeah, again,
8: pretty good, actually. So, Wallace Lake, um, which is the biggest producer of oysters in New South Wales, is open for harvest. Uh, the Hastings River, Camden Haven, the Manning River. Uh, so, a number of our big oyster-producing estuaries on that kind of mid-north coast region are, are also open for harvest, as well as Port Stevens. So, um, yeah, things are looking pretty good for, for supply.
9: And talking about Port Stephens, it's great to know that it's open for harvesting, but I know it's been difficult, especially in that estuary, just with QX. Do you know if much supply will be coming out of Port Stephens or they're still in the rebuilding phase?
8: Uh, They are definitely in the rebuilding phase, but um, I know a number of growers... I mean, Port Stephens is renowned as having a really good kind of finishing area for oysters. So a number of farmers have kind of adapted their, their... um, their models and they've actually bought in partially grown oysters uh, through the year um, and are actually finishing them in Port Stephen's. So they'll actually, a few of those growers will actually have products coming out to the market uh, in time for Christmas and outside of their disease.
9: It's been a really difficult couple of years for oyster farmers, wet weather, floods, amongst other things. Is this the time where they really can get a boost financially? They're looking for those Christmas sales.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming into a dry period where things are far more predictable, it is an opportunity for for industry to sell a lot of their their marketable products, obviously stuff that's in really good condition, that's doing the industry proud. Uh, And there's a lot of that product out there at the moment. We'd always encourage people to shop locally and support their local growers. So it is absolutely an opportunity for farmers to get back on their own two feet and put the last few difficult years behind them.
2: New South Wales Farmers Oysters Project Manager Andy Myers speaking there to Keely Johnson about a bit of a turnaround there in the oyster sector. It's 24 minutes past 12.
0: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Hello, I'm Samantha Donovan. Please join me for The World Today. The flood clean-up continues in far north Queensland as the Prime Minister announces more support for those who've lost their homes. New fuel quality standards to be introduced to reduce pollution and protect our health. And experts are warning another COVID wave may be on the way. The World Health Organisation says the JN1 variant spreads quickly. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today.
2: And on the country hour, could native forestry soon face a divestment campaign similar to those targeting fossil fuels? Forrester has resigned from the board of his local Bendigo Bank over the bank's decision to refuse funding to projects linked with native logging. Rob de Fagley is a farmer and forester from Eel on the far south coast of New South Wales. He's also chair of Sustainable Timber Tasmania and a non-executive director of Forestry Corporation of New South Wales. He says the bank hasn't provided a justification for its change in policy.
10: I joined the, the local community bank. Um, which is a franchise of Bendigo and Adelaide uh, about three years ago because I felt that um, Bendigo and Adelaide had a as a community franchise had a great model for local banking however about three months ago I discovered that the parent company has a policy that they will not um, support funding any harvesting contractors uh, involved in natural forests and Despite a range of um, communications with the CEO and their head of corporate affairs and and ESG and a a meeting in Melbourne, they could not provide any justification for this policy. And so I um, reluctantly um, took the decision to step down from our local bank um, board and make a point of... Um, suggesting that they didn't understand the industry and it was an incredibly unfair position that they'd taken. They didn't understand the negative outcomes that will impact on rural communities in Australia and what it does in driving imports of wood products into Australia. And uh, and so I resigned from the bank um, a couple of weeks ago.
11: Does that stance that Bendigo have around decisions not to fund uh, native timber forestry projects... Does that affect local businesses in any way in the southeast, for instance?
10: Well, yes, it does, and that and it was that's how I discovered the policy um, because we were made aware that a um a contractor hadn't been funded for a particular loan um i don't know who that person is because we don't um see those sorts of details as directors because we don't go behind the the counter as it were and that's when i started to follow it through and i and i found it deep down on their website and so i asked questions of the ceo and and their senior management to say how did you? How did you derive this um, this policy? What reasoning have you used? They're getting caught up in this political um, debate, which is not based on good science.
11: And so the bank says it's committed to playing a role in the transition to net zero. So it won't be uh, funding coal, coal seam gas projects, oil, natural gases. All, and it, it also mentions... Uh, funding native timber harvesting operations as well is is that a big part of it, its business
10: now, well, the bank admits that they don 't write very much business in natural forest harvesting which is which is fine I mean that they 're predominantly in housing loans and the domestic retail residential housing market but i 'd like to say that um, Forestry and natural forest management is very different from fossil fuels. Um, And and it's the multiple use management is something that the United Nations through the International Panel on Climate Change supports multiple use forestry because of its positive impact on climate change. Because we sequester wood in the wall frames of houses and the use of wood products and the careful management of natural forests for Biodiversity, wood production, other forms of conservation, recreation is actually a very positive approach to um, combating the problems of climate change.
11: Some um, experts in the field, Professor Brendan Mackey is one who says that protecting and restoring native forests is a critical mitigation actually for Australia's to meet its net zero emissions and that logging results in 94% of the stored carbon ending up in the atmosphere. Do you agree with those assessments that uh, native timber harvesting is actually contributing to climate change
10: Uh, no i don't agree i totally disagree um and and the challenge here is that uh, people tend to play with numbers because you can most of these are models and models unfortunately can be depending on the assumptions you make for the inputs to, to will determine what sort of an output you get and that's always fraught with danger Um, our forests, the Australian forests that are managed for wood productions are intact. They're all still there. They have been for many, many years now. The the total forest area um, under managed production has not changed significantly over the last 30 years.
11: Stepping back and looking at this issue more broadly, do you think that this is something the forestry industry will have to deal with soon? Banks making positions on native forestry. We're seeing state governments in Victoria and WA transition out of native forestry and banks, in this case, Bendigo Bank, and saying that they won't underwrite or provide loans to projects that are involved with uh, native forestry. So is this part of a broader trend?
10: Oh, look, I, I mean, people are obviously... Um... <laughs> Uh, making commentary about a whole raft of things in terms of climate change at the moment and and the concerning thing is that when a uh, uh, An organization like Bendigo Bank makes a decision like this without any deep research without any reasoned argument The real concern that I have is you know, who's next How do they decide? Um, what next they're going to choose what other industry they're going to pick on or is this getting awfully close to virtue signaling
2: Rob DeFegley is a farmer and forester from Eel on the far south coast of New South Wales. He was speaking there to Josh Becker. In a statement, a spokesman for Bendigo and Adelaide Bank said, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank does not provide finance directly to the coal, coal seam gas, crude oil, natural gas or native forest logging industries. Lending of this nature remains outside our business writing strategy and balance sheet appetite. This year, the bank has determined not to proceed with one loan application on the grounds that the business is directly involved in logging native forests. The decision not to lend directly to native forest logging projects has been made on several grounds. The bank is committed to meeting the expectations of stakeholders, including our customers, investors, people and the community. So that's a statement from Bendigo and Adelaide Bank uh, in relation to that uh, that news that uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, they've decided not to fund projects that are linked with native logging. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's 29 minutes to 1.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour.
11: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
2: Shortly we'll be uh, getting you to spare a bit of a thought for the older people living on farms that are uh, isolated and lonely during the festive season. Uh, We'll be talking to uh, a professor at Charles Sturt University about uh, that issue this Christmas in uh, rural and remote areas. That's coming up shortly. And also we'll get the weather details as well too from Gabrielle Woodhouse. But before we do that, Adam Story's here to give us some news headlines. Good afternoon. Good
12: afternoon, Michael. Uh, St Vincent's Health is uh, the latest to the uh, corporation to suffer a cyber attack. Uh, It's operating hospitals across Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. It became aware of the cyber security incident incident on Tuesday uh they're still investigating what data has been accessed um now they're saying uh, steps have been taken to, c- to contain the incident and service delivery hasn't been uh, affected uh so we're to see what uh, what damage this cyber attack has actually caused and what details they have uh, overseas czech police are still trying to determine the motive behind a mass shooting at a university in prague that's left 15 people dead A 24-year-old student opened fire at the Charles University, killing fellow students and staff before he was killed by police. Back home, the Prime Minister has praised the efforts of emergency crews working on the flood recovery in far north Queensland. Uh, He's also announced more disaster relief funding, uh, $25 million, will be available for farmers, another $25 million for small business and $5 million for the tourism industry. Uh, a new report from the UN has found that more than half a million people in Gaza, which is about a quarter of the population, are now starving amid Israel's bombardment and siege of the territory. Uh, the UN says the extent of the population's hunger eclipses the famines in uh, Afghanistan and Yemen of uh, recent years, and it warns that the risk of famines in famine is increasing each day and blames the hunger on insufficient aid entering Gaza. And back home, uh, there's a big uh, whale that's uh, landed on a north coast beach. Uh, it weighs up to about 25 tonnes, according to authorities. It's washed up last night on mini water about 60 kilometres north of uh, Coffs Harbour. Uh, and the uh, rescue group uh, Orca is obviously up there mm. trying to uh, get it back into oh. into the ocean. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Exactly. Let's yeah. hope so. Yeah. All right, and we'll be back at one o'clock. I'll be back at one o'clock for you. <laughs> for, for my for last your, one o'clock of twenty twenty three. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let get my penance. Yeah. All right, <laughs> right we'll uh, we'll listen to that. At all 1 right, o'clock. ho ho ho, and thanks, I'll see you yeah, in the new year. Yes, you yeah. will. Although you're going on leave for a couple of weeks, is that right? Yes, that's yeah, correct. Okay, yes, it, it'll be so we'll see you in a few weeks time around about the 8th or something like when that. when you've got a suntan i better check that <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 25 minutes to one here on the new south wales country hour it's time to find out what's happening with the weather details gabriel woodhouse is at the bureau good afternoon
0: good afternoon michael
2: so we've been talking about all this rain around the place in the last few days or so and uh, putting out bushfires thankfully and that's good and some good rainfall totals is it has all the rain sort of moved out now or is there still a little bit around
0: a bit of both. So um, yesterday we did see some uh, fairly high rainfall totals up through parts of the northern rivers. So we picked up 83 millimetres at Brace Creek and near uh, Lismore um, just over 60 millimetres. At the moment we're seeing a little bit of uh, rain um, along the far north coast there and just starting to see some thunderstorms develop over the far west. Um, so what we'll see for the rest of today is more storms um, and, and a few showers across uh, the northern inland and out towards the far west. But that stormy uh, weather is going to be uh, hanging around for the next few days. So across the weekend and into Christmas, we are looking at a fairly significant uh, thunderstorm uh, outbreak. And at this stage, it looks as though we'll be fairly likely to see severe thunderstorm warnings being issued uh, throughout the weekend and into Christmas. So, um, yeah, fairly unsettled conditions and rainfall totals, as you'd expect with this, are going to be pretty hit and miss in nature. But it does seem as though a few places could be picking up um, in excess of, you know, 20 or 30 millimetres.
2: Right. Okay. So, but it's not going to be an East Coast low. That's not any fear there that that's going to happen or that's going to develop?
0: Look, at the moment what we're seeing um, through the weekend and more so into early next week is the trough that's helping to generate uh, the fairly unsettled conditions is going to deepen and form a low-pressure system somewhere either over southern New South Wales or over parts of Victoria and then it's going to slowly move east. So at the moment it doesn't have the same sort of characteristics that we'd see with an east coast low, but we are still seeing that trough deepen and it is interacting with a very humid air mass to produce some fairly widespread showers and thunderstorms.
2: So it sounds like those thunderstorms uh, initially is sort of 20, 30 millimetres, but there could be more coming. Is thats is that, that what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, and like in the space of, you know, half an hour, that's what you could be seeing underneath a thunderstorm. In terms of like a totals over the next couple of days, we could be seen well in excess of that in, in a few pockets, but it is going to depend on exactly where we see those storms form. Um, at this stage, it seems as though uh, a lot of the activity for tomorrow will be um, across the central and northern inland, um, particularly about the plains. But uh, once we move to Christmas Eve, that starts to shift a little bit further east um, and cover all of the western slopes, plains, ranges, and uh, also towards the coast and uh, see a similar so- sort of uh, scenario for Monday.
2: <coughs> right, okay, so um, risk of flooding for any of these uh, sort of coastal areas, are we talking, or maybe, uh, you know, or, or generally on the east coast, is there a risk of flooding for any of those communities?
0: At the moment, the main risk is going to be from flash flooding, um, and that's just going to be associated with that really short burst of heavy rainfall with thunderstorms. We're not looking at uh, those uh, widespread falls that would lead to sort of riverine flooding. There will obviously be um, some local creek rises and and things like that when we see some of this rainfall fall, but uh, the main risk is really going to be severe thunderstorms producing that uh, risk of flash flooding.
2: Right, well, risk of flash flooding. Okay, so and and um, uh, is there any chance that there might be we might end up more getting more than that? Like some areas might get into the the hundred millimeters or so, or if we have like a thunderstorm and rain activity together, so we we could get uh, sort of two lots together, two lots at once.
0: Yeah, that is indeed a risk um, in in a few few areas. So particularly across parts of the northwest. Um, and even a little bit further south over parts of the, the southern ranges, we could be seeing that happen. But it is going to depend on seeing those thunderstorms form in the same areas multiple days in a row to see those accumulations um, build up over the course of, of uh, you know, two to three days.
2: And what about the inland? Is that likely to get some rain as well?
0: So uh, across the slopes and plains, we're looking like fairly likely to see our showers and storms. Rainfall totals, um, for the most part of, of the order of a few millimetres but uh, underneath those storms that's where we're looking at uh, in excess of you know, 20 or 30 or even 40 millimetres of rainfall over a fairly short period of time. Um, so that is looking quite likely um, right across the, the slopes and plains through uh, Sunday and into Monday. Then we sort of, uh, start to see conditions clear up um, during the second half of the week and also see those uh, temperatures warm up as well.
2: Right. Okay. So we, so uh, the underlying one or two millimeters. But if you get a thunderstorm, you'll you might uh, you might get a, a hell of a lot more than that.
0: Exactly, and that's what we always see with um, these sorts of uh, stormy outbreaks. Um, that you know, just down the road, you can see a thunderstorm and they get a, a lot of rain. But um, the, the storm might miss your property, and, and uh, you know, you don't get as much rainfall and just get a couple of millimeters on the periphery of it. So at this stage, it's, it's more likely that we'll see at least a few millimeters. Um, and uh, if you're underneath some of those storms, you're looking at getting a lot more.
2: OK, Gabriel, thanks for that. My pleasure. Have a great Christmas. You too. <laughs> it's uh, 21 minutes to one here on the uh, Country Hour.
7: You're listening to the Country
2: Hour
0: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: Well, this Christmas, spare of thought for the older people living on farms, isolated and lonely during the festive season. Adjunct Associate Professor Marie Burnoth from the Charles Sturt University says older men in rural areas are particularly at risk. One of the problems, she says, is that stoic she'll be right attitude. She says it does hold back that clarion call for assistance that some really do need. And she says the community and uh, medical professionals like GPs and nurses can also rally around and help, and maybe uh, maybe they should do a little bit more than they do now. Professor Marie Burnoth says that there needs to be an awareness out there when the traditional services close down over Christmas and the New Year uh, over that support and help that is out there at this uh, pretty interesting time of the year
3: yeah it it is a very emotional time Michael um especially in our rural communities where uh, family and togetherness have been so important to our older people for many years of course um i I got off the um uh, midnight train in Wagga the other day, and there was a young couple getting off the train to be greeted by it looked like three or four generations. And they were embraced and cuddled and, you know, it looked fabulous. They were coming home for Christmas. And that's the ideal. Um, But there are also very many rural older people who are isolated. Uh, We know that um, loneliness and isolation is a big issue in uh, um, our rural communities, even though rural communities do have a great sense of community and, and do tend to bring people together in all sorts of events. But our older rural men are very prone to depression and it is though that group that uh, has the highest um, percentage of um, uh, suicides for their age group. So this time of year can bring memories of um, togetherness and happy times. It can also be a time when families come together and um, old, old um, memories that are not very positive come out and there can be conflict. Um, there can be older people sitting in their houses with no one. Mm. Um, so you know we've got a, a real mix. Um, but I do, I do really love living in. Uh, uh, regional, rural area, I do really love the sense of community that does exist and a lot of the kindnesses that you see within those smaller communities.
2: So I guess part of the issue is, you know, on people on farms, you know, this uh, quite isolated, you know, at the best of times but I mean, mm-hmm. Christmas time too particularly.
3: Um, yes, that's the case. Um, it, uh, people who live in um, in isolated areas and on places that are geographically isolated can have an issue because they may receive services um, maybe during the week, um, but those services aren't available generally over Christmas. Uh, so there can be those people who are isolated on their farms, um, but there, there are entities that can um, support those people. What I find a lot, Michael, is that there are... Um, uh, sources of support. Uh, for example, there's a group called Older Men, New Ideas. Um, but older men tend to have a sense of pride. They, don't ha- they haven't built up networks, especially if they've been isolated on farms. They don't reach out. Um, it's a real struggle for them to say, I need help. But within these groups, they can find help and support. Um, there seems to be a stigma, you know. Our um, our rural farmers, our rural people, you know, they're they're really, you know, they're stoic. They're, they're used to being independent and getting things done through the tough times. But when they're finding it um, tough themselves personally, um, they're very reticent to reach out and say, you know, I need help, because I know there's there's no need for people to be so isolated. There are sources of help. It it is incumbent on people to reach out for help and for families to gently suggest um, that uh, these entities exist. You know, men who go to the men's shed, um, you know, uh, the, the various farmers groups for mental health, they do a fabulous job, but they can't help if they don't know that there is a need.
2: I guess the other thing is too that these men, as you say, stoic—you know, the uh, the the old white guys that are just not not going to reach out for help themselves. So maybe it's maybe it's incumbent on those groups like the like the services clubs or the or the men sheds or uh, uh, you know someone someone else in the community to to you know gently uh, suggest they might need um, a bit of company.
3: And you know the prime people for that are our health professionals, mm. um, especially GPs um, and our community, rural community nurses. I know they're fabulous. The rural community nurses, I can't say enough about them because I was one myself. So, you know, they're great. But um, it's our health professionals who need to be alert and aware uh, when we've got someone who, who may be feeling lonely, um, uh, not um, uh, not as well as usual, um, and But what I'm finding, Michael, is that there, there seems to be um, a lack of awareness or, or a lack of education for um, our health professionals in relation to older people. There isn't that um, likelihood that they will assess, you know, that we've got a shortage of GPs, we've got short, uh, GPs from um, many different countries and, you know, thank goodness they're here. But uh, we've got language problems um, and we've got the cost of getting to a GP. So all those factors also come into play as far as, you know, um, recognising issues. But i found that GPs might spend 10 minutes with someone. So in that time, there's not the ability to, for them to pick up on um, issues around depression and especially to pick up those early signs of dementia. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done by those of us in the, um, in the uh, universities in um, educating and preparing our doctors, um, our nurses and our allied health professionals to encounter a society where there is an increasing number of older people to get rid of any ageist attitudes but then to have the astute knowledge and skills to be able to pick up um, issues with older people that can look different than those in a younger adult.
2: And a lot of the GPs, you know, they are younger and, or, or they've come from another country. So maybe they don't have that, don't have the sort of rural setup that we have in Australia where people are on the farm by themselves. And maybe they're not aware of that culturally or they're just young and inexperienced. So I guess there's, there's room for uh, quite a bit of uh, information sharing on that too.
3: Um, yeah, it's certainly. So the university certainly in preparation, bringing um, GPs in from overseas and the education they receive, but also our primary health networks. Um, the primary health networks are responsible for various areas of health provision in Australia, um, and it's them who can be, uh, who can be doing something to ensure that um, our overseas um, trained and qualified uh, GPs are aware of issues around ageing. Some of our, um, our overseas GPs may not have encountered older people. There are societies where, you know, the, the, um, um, the um, lifespan is, you know, 50 or 60. Mm. So they're not encountering uh, the multiple chronic conditions and the other complex issues that arise when People are in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, you know, we want to support those people. There's a lot to be done in our rural areas that are beyond the capacity of the community. Community certainly has responsibility, but so does government policy. And government policy needs to be enacted and be fair across the whole of Australia.
2: And some of those changes wouldn't cost a lot of money. It might just be you know, about awareness or having a couple of people on the ground that aren't there now.
3: Yeah, but talking about people, Michael, is that, you know, we don't have um, health professionals out here. We don't have the number that we need. We need more um, uh, skilled health professionals out in um, rural areas who are willing to come out and enjoy the wonderful lifestyle that um, a rural community can provide.
2: But they may not be doctors, but they may, but, no, but no, health professionals. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's...
3: we need. Yeah, we need allied health professionals. Mm. We need nurses. Um, we need social workers. Mm. Uh, we need podiatrists. <laughs> give a plug for the podiatrist.
2: Adjunct Associate Professor Marie Bernoth from Charles Sturt University saying, "Spare a thought for those older people living on farms, isolated and lonely during this festive season." It's ten minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news,
0: music, and more. You're listening to The Country
1: Hour
11: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: The last truckload of fresh wild-caught seafood from the state's north coast is now on its way to the Sydney fish market in time for Christmas at the Ballina Fishermen's Cooperative. Yesterday, the truck had just rolled in to collect the last catches when Kim Honan dropped in, and we hear from a local snapper crab fisher shortly. But first, uh, she joined the co-op's uh, CEO, Evan Davies, alongside those final boxes while they were being packed.
13: It is a very busy time of year, even though... Uh consumer demand has been slow this week. It's starting to build to a crescendo as it normally does towards the days as we get closer to Christmas.
1: And how much product is going through the co-op this time of year? Well
13: on Christmas Eve we expect to do around about three and a half tonne of prawn and um, other crustaceans, crabs um, bugs and that sort of thing around about a tonne and a half of that.
1: So Ballina really living up to the the home of the big prawn?
13: It is. We've had people, believe this or not, but it is true. I've, I've witnessed it with my own eyes, drive down from Toowoomba to get Ballina product. I mean, you know, Australian seafood, as we know, is the best in the world, or amongst the best in the world, but certainly local Ballina product is the best in Australia. And that's testimony to the fact they want to jump in their cars and drive all the way down from Toowoomba to Ballina to get some.
1: And aside from the prawns,
13: what else are fishermen catching? Oh, they're catching um, uh, snapper, flathead, whiting. Uh, A whole variety of species are being caught.
1: And will there be a lot of prawns for Christmas? Are we going to see the record lineups of people wanting to get hold of their prawns?
13: Well, it's an interesting thing. I guess it's a little bit of uh, crystal ball-gazing there because it's it's fair to say that uh, consumer demand... For a whole lot of reasons, has been dampened throughout this uh, this calendar year, and uh, people are watching what they spend. I think they'll be buying more um, thoughtfully with with um, their seafood purchases, rather than just say, "I'll have one of everything."
1: And what's the price of prawns at the moment? Are they is it steady? Is it up or down on previous years?
11: Well,
13: um, we as a cooperative are very conscious of the fact that uh, our shareholders are the fishermen themselves and we sell their product and with um, consumable product like fresh fish you can't stack it away until the price goes up so we keep our prices quite affordable not only for the the community but um, it's important that we, we we make it affordable to sell the product But the other pressures that we're facing too, as our fishermen are facing, the cost of our inputs, like fishermen are paying more for their fuel to go and catch the product, so they're under stress to maintain their margins, to maintain viability, like we are as a business on their behalf under stress to maintain our viability. We've never been an organisation that's pursued super profits. All the profits we make go back into the cooperative itself.
1: Well, it is pretty busy at the moment. The, the truck, the seafood truck has arrived, the, the last shipment to, it, to Sydney?
13: S- to the Sydney market, yeah. yeah. That'll, uh, that'll uh, do a, uh, a milk run all the way down the coast and then be in Sydney by about 1 o'clock uh, tomorrow morning and be on the market floor at 4 o'clock tomorrow in yeah. Sydney.
1: So fishermen packing up the last of their product to put on the truck?
13: That is exactly right, yeah. There's pallets in the in the cool room ready to go. Um, so in about a, an hour's time, it'll, the truck will be loaded and be on its way.
14: Daniel Fleming from Pottsville.
1: OK, so you're here at the Ballina Fishermen's Co-op
14: catching the last truck to Sydney. Correct. Tell me what product you've got. Uh, today we sent down spanner crabs, cooked spanner crabs. I've opted to cook them today instead of live. Due to being so close to Christmas, not enough time for the fishmongers to cook them. That's, that's my idea behind it anyway.
1: Do you normally get a better price for the
14: live crab though? We do. 99% of the time it's better price for live. Uh, but the last couple of days, cooks come, come in front by a, a decent margin.
1: Well, you can't get much fresher than this. You're at the co-op, you're
14: cooking the crabs here,
1: then putting them in ice and then straight onto the truck for Sydney.
14: Correct, yeah. So it's uh, some of the freshest crabs you can get in Australia this time of year, so they should be very happy down there. Mm-hmm.
1: And is it just the, the crabs that you're catching for, yeah. for Chrissy? Yeah, just the spanner
14: crabs. Just yeah. uh, Tomorrow I'm going out again for public sales in Pottsville, um, but, yeah, today it's strictly down in Sydney. There's some big-looking crabs in there. There is, yeah. We've been picking uh, the bigger crabs out, leaving the smaller ones alone. Um, you get better money for the bigger crabs. Females are a no-take this time of year, and we try and leave the smaller and the medium ones alone. Just take large and extra-large. And how do you catch them? And where are they caught? Uh, they're on dealies, uh, ten in a string, with a bunch of floats and headgear above them, and they're caught everywhere from 20 metres out to 70 metres of water, pretty much from 1770 all the way down to Southwest Rocks. It's a good, good viable species for New South Wales and Queensland, so very happy to be able to harvest them.
1: And how do they taste? Are they nicer than the mud crab? Are they as good as lobster? Where do you rate them?
14: It's an it's a age-old argument, that one. It, depending, I'm, I'm probably a little bit biased. I'll say spanner crab, uh, one of the more tastier. Price per kilo and what you get, spanner crab is more affordable than lobsters. Uh, maybe not as good as a mud crab. It just depends on the, on the day. And spanner crabs are funny. Their claw tastes different to their body meat and vice versa. So... Very, very good eating there.
1: And so how would you serve it up on the Christmas table? Uh, you'd have
14: to do whole whole crabs, wouldn't you? Something like that with a cold beer, just to start the afternoon off and some prawns, I think. Uh, but everyone's different, uh, depending on your, your nationality, really. Uh, the, the Vietnamese community stews them down in Sydney and they cook them and eat them live. Um, different ethnic groups in Australia cook them and eat them differently. So it's quite a... Um, it's a unique sort of... Take on how to cook them on the day.
2: That's Snapper Crab Fisherman Daniel Fleming uh, talking there with Kim Honan at the local seafood cooperative in Ballinor. And uh, that, of course, is uh, the home, Ballina, the home of the big prawn. It's uh, coming up to three minutes to
11: one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. <laughs>
2: A marine heatwave has formed off the New South Wales south coast with sea temperatures forecast to reach 2.5 centigrade warmer than usual this this summer. Scientists are concerned that the warm waters could affect the lucrative aquaculture industry and threaten the kelp forests there as well. Reporter Bernadette Clark has more.
9: A marine heatwave is currently sitting kilometres offshore on New South Wales south coast and authorities are concerned it could shift onshore, damaging kelp forests, abalone and oysters. But what is a marine heatwave? Research fellow from the University of Tasmania, Dr Kane Layton, who lives on the south coast, explains.
15: The people are really familiar with heatwaves we have on land. We obviously have general warming on land, but we get this period of intense, uh, often short warming, that can be overlaid on that. And that's a heatwave on land. It's really the same thing in the oceans. But we have background warming that's happening uh, in the ocean and that's also getting worse with climate change. But we also have these intense, much shorter periods of warming over the top of that, and that's called a marine heatwave.
9: The southeast of Australia is a global ocean warming hotspot already.
15: We've already seen changes uh, in our part of the world that are only expected to be seen elsewhere in the next coming decades. So, you know, we've already seen upwards of a degree of warming uh, in our oceans in Southeast Australia.
9: Marine heat waves have had dire consequences in the past and now all eyes are on the Southeast of Australia.
15: So we've seen some really big heat waves in the relatively recent uh, past in Australia, 2010, 2011. We saw a really severe one in Western Australia and that caused about a hundred kilometer die off kelp of golden kelp and still you know 13 years later that kelp still hasn't recovered so that's a permanent retraction of that species which is really worrying. Without kelp you can't have kelp forests and that's really the home for all of those incredible uh, organisms that live here.
9: The last major marine heat wave was in 2015-2016 off the coast of Tasmania. Temperatures rose to 2.5 degrees above average and it ran for 250 days. It led to black lip abalone mortalities, salmon losses and may have contributed to the outbreak of the highly contagious viral infection, Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome or POMS. Here's John Smythe, an abalone diver and secretary of the Abalone Association, New South Wales.
10: Well, we know that heat, hot water is one of the major stresses for abalone. So obviously the industry from here right to Tasmania is concerned that we could have a hot water event or a marine heat wave of members they're calling it,
4: similar to what you had in West Australia some weeks ago that killed their row-eye maloney the yeah we're concerned
2: that report from Bernadette Clark you're listening to The Country Hour we'll be back on Boxing Day have a great Christmas it's one o'clock